Hello to all our listeners, and thanks again for tuning in. This is the Developmentor Podcast, and we are your source for interviews and content on careers in technology. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. If this is your first episode you're listening to, thank you for joining us. We have three simple goals. We want to showcase interesting people in tech across a variety of roles, highlight the different paths people take in their careers, and most importantly, we want to help you find your path. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at Developmentor. Today's guest is a communications and media studies graduate who started his early career as a writer and editor before entering the world of development. He's held a variety of roles, including software engineer, director of technology, and CTO. These days, he's an engineering manager and fellow podcaster who started the spec.fm podcast network which currently hosts 12 different podcasts and sees an average of 100,000 downloads a week. Please welcome to the show, Jonathan Cottrell. Jonathan, great to have you here. Thank you so much, Grant. And uh, what you didn't mention is that you were actually on the podcast that you and I had way back five years ago, actually. Uh, you were on Developer T, and it was a great episode. I really, really enjoyed that episode. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. I mean, it was funny as I was prepping for this. I'm like, I know I was on your podcast, but I couldn't find it. It was so long ago. It's like almost ancient history in the back of my brain at this point. Your name is memorable, first of all. So that certainly is part of it. But uh, the conversation was fantastic. Of course, we were talking more specifically about it and developer oriented things on that show. It's been a crazy ride and have enjoyed so many of these discussions. And these things they come back and revisit you like this has. I'm really grateful to be able to do a podcast and uh, excited that more people like you are getting into this as well. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And Jonathan, I'm sure we could just sit and talk podcasting all day because I have so many questions around podcasting as a newbie in the field. But this is Developmentor. This is all about careers in tech. And so I want to really drill in and focus on your career. And I would love it if you kind of walked our listeners through the highlights. Take that moment to introduce yourself and get our listeners up to date. Yeah. So I guess everything starts in childhood for most people, right? Way back when I was a kid, I remember my dad taking computers apart, putting them back together, doing a little bit on the command line, but he wasn't really a software engineer. Uh, that was about the extent of exposure that I had growing up to computers. It was you know, always PCs and always just enough to be able to kind of restart the computer from the command line. And, you know, I loved playing computer games and, and that kind of thing. I loved video games, et cetera. But really what I was more interested in was music. I actually became a musician fairly early. I was 13 when I started playing guitar. And before that, I had played piano. And I fully expected, uh, naively, I think, that I would end up a musician. And there's probably people who are listening to this right now who have a very similar story in, in their background. And so I went off to college initially thinking that I was going to go and pursue a career as a musician. What I didn't realize at the time was that it wasn't actually being a musician that captured my attention. And it took me a while to figure this out. It wasn't just being a musician and playing music specifically. I learned this partially by actually starting in this particular career path, playing the kind of the classical music, which is pretty much uh, anytime you go to college for music, you're going to go through the ringer of having to learn a lot about classical music. And so I realized that this wasn't really interesting to me. It was almost a shock 
to me, realizing that this part of my love for music just wasn't there. It was absent. So I was trying to figure out, like, what is it exactly that I enjoy about this? It came to me that, uh, and I don't know how it came to me, there wasn't a single moment. It was over the course of a year or two that I realized that most of what I cared about was connecting with other people through this kind of platform of expression. It was less about music specifically, although I had practiced so much, that was kind of the most fluent thing for me to express myself through. But it wasn't so much about that. It was, it was about taking some, some kind of message or some kind of emotion, some kind of thing that I wanted to express and, and doing it in kind of a one-to-many way from some kind of platform. And in particular, doing it in a way that I was able to develop some amount of expertise in the medium that I was using. I could do this with music. And so I started kind of exploring that idea. And I realized, well, media is actually kind of the point here for me. It's being able to express um, a message to a broad audience, to anyone who wants to kind of, oddly enough, subscribe to that media, right? Turns out that podcasts are, are another form of this, you know, fast forward quite a few years, but being able to, to make that message known to not any one particular person, but more like prototypes of people. That sounds really impersonal, doesn't it? Uh, but types of people who are experiencing something maybe that I was experiencing at the time that I created that media. So that's the path that I pursued. And I started writing about user experience, which felt like you know crafting that media in a particular way so that you could connect in a different way with that person. And ultimately, I ended up kind of pursuing this wholeheartedly, this communications path. And I learned so much about the way that people think. I learned so much about the way that you know, two people uh, who have totally different backgrounds can share a common language. Uh, there's so much kind of rich, interesting information in that. And then I left uh, my undergrad and I'd always wanted to pursue you know, beyond you know, postgrad uh, education, basically. And so I was looking for, you know, what is the next thing for me? And I'd already done an internship as a front-end developer. I thought it was going to be a designer. So all of this kind of this pathway naturally led me into software engineering. It's kind of this weird path because it started from music and I, I found this expression platform, this stage, and I realized, wow, this is, this is really powerful. And by virtue of the popularity of the medium itself. It wasn't that I was specifically drawn to computing. It was more like computing was very quickly becoming ubiquitously available, right? So it's right in front of my face, essentially. I stepped into that field. I started working as a front-end developer in this internship, and it was so interesting to me. I was totally mm. captured by this brand new platform because it was this combination of, I won't even say art, it was even more than that. It was all these different media, they all come together and there's a website on the page in front of you. And so that was so interesting to me. It's like this, this combination of science and expression and art, sociology, and all of it right there in one website that you can go and visit anywhere in the world. So I went and pursued this in my, in my master's degree. I, I pursued it more abstractly than, you know, it wasn't a web development master's degree. I don't even think that exists but it was a degree in digital media. And that still sounds pretty abstract, right? That was what was so interesting to me about it is there's all of these different media that we can use. And so I went and I pursued this. 
I'm kind of curious. I mean, were you learning to code while doing either your undergrad or grad? Like, was were you taking courses in this? Because you said you were doing some internships around, you know, front-end development, et cetera. Was that something you just picked up on the side because you kind of started to piece together that, hey, the web's really taking off and there's this communication platform? Or were you explicitly taking classes there? There is an evil language called ActionScript that I had uh, that I'd been exposed to. Uh, quite frankly, becoming a professional musician, whether you want to go and tour as a musician or if you want to go and be a studio musician, you need some kind of online portfolio. And at the time, there weren't as many kind of expressive platforms for you to do this today off the cuff, right? You couldn't just go and sign up and upload everything that you wanted to and make it look how you wanted it to look. There were no Squarespace kind of things back then. Otherwise, lucky for me, I probably wouldn't have ended up where I am today had there been that, which is a different kind of interesting topic to talk about. Uh, but I got into it because I almost out of necessity initially, it was kind of exposed to me at that point. And then after that, it was me teaching myself mostly because I thought I was going to be a designer. And I knew that in order for my design to matter, I had to make it come alive. I wanted to write about design and about communicating in kind of a visual platform. And I couldn't really do that. I, you know, I couldn't do that without having my own visual platform. So this is how I learned HTML. It's how I learned CSS. And then JavaScript, which is probably the one that swung the door open wide for me. No shade to modern PHP. The PHP I was writing, however, not so great. Well, I, I'm curious. So it's, it's one thing to, you know, put up your own, you know, quote unquote, homepage or, you know, fan page, whatever you want to call it as a, an aspiring musician. It's another thing to land a job as a programmer. What was that like? When did the switch flip to say, you know what? hey, music's going to be my hobby or whatever it is. I'm assuming you kind of put it in a certain place in your mind. And you said, no, I'm going to go in to be a developer. When, when did that switch flip for you? There's probably a series of switches for me. Maybe the biggest one was when I walked into an internship thinking that I was going to be a design intern. Because I created that homepage that you're talking about, they had seen the code and they're like, no, we want you to, Become an intern as a front-end developer. And I didn't even really know what that was. I just thought that it's all the same stuff, right? It's uh, code is code and design is design. And sometimes you have to code to be able to get your design out there. Right? I've really been exposed to this idea of separation of, of those concerns at all. So I got thrown into the deep end uh, at this agency. And the individuals in the agency were very much so some of the most talented people, even to this day, that I've ever met in my life. And I come in with basically no experience. And I'm watching what they're doing and I'm just completely in awe. I'd never met anyone who was at that level of software development. I felt like what I imagine babies feel like when there's a bunch of adults talking around them. Because nothing made sense to me. And I wanted so bad to understand, but there was no practical way for me to make sense out of it. And so, just being immersed in it was the best thing that I could do to understand it. And so I was constantly just listening to conversations, reading code that I had no idea what it was doing. It was definitely that full immersion experience rather than having a person kind of standing over my shoulder and pointing out what to do next. It was much more like me just feeling very inadequate for the entire internship and coming out 
much better on the other side. And to be clear, nobody ever made me feel that way. Nobody was telling me that I was, you know, terrible software engineer. It was much more about, you know, recognizing that this whole field of information that I just had never been exposed to, but that I was very interested in. There's two switches there, right? The first one was somebody telling me, hey, you have what it takes to do this thing that you don't even know what it is. You've kind of dipped your toe into this pool that turns out is an ocean. So that was switch number one. The second switch was just being so entranced by the work that was going on in this company when I took this internship. And I'm a huge advocate for internships somewhat as a result of this actually, of being around people who are just leaps and bounds ahead of you in terms of their experience levels. I think it's a very healthy thing to do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm a big advocate of it too. I mean, I think where else do you get experience, but it also helps you get to know a company. So, okay. So you do this internship and then if I'm reading your profile, right. And sometimes LinkedIn isn't always the best way to, to capture this stuff. You then, you know, really dug in at, I believe it was whiteboard and we're there for quite some time. And, you know, walk me through kind of the next stages of your career as you, you know, okay, you know, you've caught the proverbial car, you're now a developer and you've done this internship and now kind of get us up through to some of the, the next stages of your career, if you will. A lot of this is happening kind of in concert with pursuing that master's degree. And uh, because that internship I was telling you about was kind of the trigger for me to decide, yes, I, I do want to pursue this, this master's degree. And so during this master's degree process, you know, uh, master's students, they have to work or else they can't eat, uh, as it turns out. And I was working with some friends that I had met in my undergrad, and they just so happened to be starting this company, this kind of company called Whiteboard. And as I was working through my master's degree, I didn't know whether I wanted to you know, stay in academia, for example. That was fully an option to me. I was still figuring things out. And I think a lot of people probably feel this way. Honestly, sometimes I feel this way now. So I'm you know, trying to figure out you know, like, what's next. And multiple projects that I worked on with these guys, they became very close friends of mine. And the work that we did together wasn't the highest paying work that I could have done. It wasn't because, you know, somehow it was the most technically challenging work that I could do. But it was work that I was doing that I felt like I was growing at my maximum pace. And I was able to kind of collaborate with people that it seemed like we could speak the same language together. We saw eye to eye on enough things, especially in those early days, that working was a joy. Like it was, I enjoyed working with these people. And I think very often, you know, people come out of school and it's time to get serious. We got to get a job. We got to make sure that we set our career on the right trajectory. And they discount the importance of finding something that you truly enjoy as if we're only allowed to seek enjoyment in our lives when we're young, uh, when we're in grade school. I rejected that idea. I, I thought, man, this is fun. Why not just keep doing it? We started building this company together under the notion that we could work with our friends and who was going to tell us not to. A lot of it was admittedly, you know, privileged position that we found ourselves in. Obviously, we had enough resources to go to college. We had enough resources to make a bet that may not necessarily pan out. Not everybody has that privilege. And I'm, I'm very thankful for the position I found myself in at that juncture in my life. On the other hand, you know, Doing that together really forged so many skills 
that sometimes take other people, and I'm you know not trying to compare and say, well, you know, I fast tracked myself. There's more. I learned a lot of the hard lessons that, for some people, take many many years to learn. I learned them much more in a compressed way. Not starting the company, but help starting the company with my friends. I think you're dead on. I mean, this is why startups can be so appealing or going to work for a place where you know you're going to get, you know, kind of put through the ringer. I mean, it sounds awful at start, but compression of experience, you know, into a shorter and shorter period of time can be so valuable in finding what you want to do. You know, like you thought you were going to be a musician. You didn't know you were going to do this code thing. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And I kind of try to coach that on the show to some extent is like, you don't have to know right off the bat. It's okay to go explore things, especially in your 20s. That's a great time to go try out a bunch of different careers or a bunch of different roles and see what sticks. So I, I think you're spot on there, Jonathan. Kind of bring us forward then a little bit and round out the, the rest of the career path, if you will. So that, and then we can get into some of the more deeper parts of each of these roles. You're at Whiteboard, this company that you co-founded or worked it with your friends for. It sounds like an amazing experience. But then, you know, at some point you decide to leave and move on. Did the company just go on its way? Did you, did it fold? Were you just in a different place? You know, it sounds like an amazing experience yet, you know, at some point you said, Hey, why leave? For every person, you have to make this personal because these decisions out of everybody that they affect, they affect you the most. And so for me, this incredibly personal decision came down to a handful of factors. Uh, one of them was that I felt like I had reached kind of my maximum growing potential in this company. And that might sound a little bit boilerplate-y, Googling what do I say to future employer when they ask me why I left. But I really actually faced that reality in this position. I faced the idea that if I continued here, I would stagnate. And not to anyone's fault, to be clear, but quite simply, is it was there are times in life where a transition, I think, is the best decision for everyone involved. And I think that was true in this case. That doesn't mean that, you know, that it's easy. Certainly not. It also doesn't mean that uh, it feels right. Even to myself, there were parts of me that are fighting myself over this kind of decision. It's a very personal decision to leave your friends behind, you know, in a, in a company that you helped kind of pour a, a lot of blood, sweat and tears into. Uh, and, and to make things even harder, my wife worked at, at the same company with me. It was very difficult for us to kind of work through this. Like I said, it was a handful of things, and most of those are nuanced, right? They're, they're not very clear. There was never a moment in time that made me feel like, oh, this is the last straw for me. So it was much more about you know, me aligning both what I see as, as my greatest potential for growth, because you know, facing this reality getting older and looking back in my career, I was realizing, hey, you know what? This, this is the only shot that I get at doing something that I can grow into what I want to be. I don't get another life to replay and try everything out again. Not an easy thing to explain. I think you hit it right on. And, and you know, it's especially interesting. I mean, I, I struggle with the same because I just made a career, you know, a transition like this as well, walking away from my baby. And I, I feel you, Jonathan. I mean, this is a hard decision. And, and especially you were in a leadership role. And many times when you're in a leadership role, you know, you're like, I hired all these people. I built this team. That's probably the transition and segue we need into of like the kind of the here and now and the, the next phase because you walked away, 
that's when I believe, you know, about the same time you started Developer T, your podcast, you started Spec FM. It looked like maybe you did a little stint here at, uh, I think it was Clearbit, and then on to your current role. So kind of bring us up to, to the latest. Quite frankly, I think Developer T was as much of a me talking to myself as it is me talking to the people who listen to it. I really worked through a lot of my own issues on this podcast, even though it doesn't necessarily sound like that potentially for people who are listening it's therapeutic i think for me i'm smiling ear to ear right now jonathan because i didn't intend to start off this way with this show but i totally get it because it's like you're almost like i need this thing myself but yeah keep going it's almost a journaling process for me you know it's it's what a lot of people get out of journaling i get out of making a podcast you know some of the things that i was doing with the podcast were the things that were prompting me to consider, is this really the only path for you or, or are there other paths, right? I didn't leave Whiteboard to go and start the podcast, but I think the podcast kind of opened my mind up a little bit. Well, and I think if I'm looking at the dates too, by the time you left Clearbit, I mean, you were three years in or so on the podcast. And so I imagine you know, you had had some traction at that point. So that's probably a, a good change. I've been binge listening to Developer T. I remember our episode now that you've tickled the neurons in my brain around it. Uh, I really love this format kind of of these short, quick bites, if you will, designed to, well, while you're getting your tea. Tell us a bit more about that inspiration and the goals of the show and why somebody should listen. Give the pitch on Developer T for our audience. I think the easiest way to think about developer T and incidentally to think about almost anything is in the smallest possible chunk that you can consume. I think about this for, for software engineering. I think about it for even building a relationship with my wife or right now we're in the process of building a house and we have this massive backlog of work to do. And the thing that revolutionized the way that I think about software engineering to begin with is breaking things down into their smallest possible form. This is what I wanted to do with Developer T. I wanted to make a podcast that was basically the atomic version of a podcast. What is the smallest thing that is valuable to deliver into a feed that people will listen to? Although I, I won't say that the episodes are totally irreducible. I, I certainly uh, have not quite gotten to that level of nirvana. <laughs> They're intentionally short. And part of the intention behind it was uh, motivated by, hey, you know what? I live in a small city. And so my commute is really short. I don't have time to invest you know, an hour and a half necessarily into every podcast that I listen to. And some of these podcasts I absolutely love. I wish that they were short. I, I want the same thing, but I, I just want it to be shorter. So I, I set out intentionally for what became the tea break. Actually, it was in my mind, it was the coffee break. As it turns out, coffee is a pretty saturated subject on iTunes. Really was this moment of inspiration to make something small and valuable and publish it before I even had a second chance to think about it. My wife designed the logo for it. We literally did the full kind of brand in the first couple of episodes over the course of a weekend. And I remember the conversations that we had in those early days were, do you think this is ever going to make enough money to pay us back for the hosting of these episodes? You know, we couldn't predict what it would become. 
uh, certainly didn't have a guarantee for it. But even if I could rewind and, and take away all of the other external kind of career benefits that I've had from this podcast, it was worth doing for me. It was, it was worth standing in front of this microphone, standing in front of the same one right now, and processing these ideas, even if I had no personal benefit, for the benefit of the people who listen to it. It's been truly incredible and very rewarding process to go through. So yeah, that's the birth of the show, really. That's amazing. I mean, now I'm sitting here thinking, how do I reduce an interview format down to the, the atomic parts? And I don't intend it to be a criticism. No, it's great. I think it's all about knowing what the right format and what your time commitment and all that. I mean, I think, I think that's fantastic. I thought long and hard about how do I make this shorter? Actually, though, to your credit, I think conversations are one of those things that I don't think they need to be reduced. There's some value in, in just letting those be kind of organic and, and growing. My advice to my listeners is to listen on one and a half speed. I, I sound way better on one and a half speed. <laughs> I've been labeled a chill dad. You just got to own that at that point. Okay. So, but not only did you start a podcast, but you actually have built up a whole podcast network, right? Focused on developers and technology. And you're doing this while doing a day job. I got to know more how you do this because like I got a full-time job. I'm trying very specifically to keep the hours contained around this podcast. So I'm just kind of curious as to tell us more about Spec FM and the whole network that you've created. So spec.fm or spec.fm is where you would go to find this network. But uh, spec is, is a network that uh, myself and two other podcast hosts from Design Details, Brian Levin and Bryn Jackson, fun kind of trivia for podcast listeners out there who know about us. We actually started our shows on the exact same day without even knowing each other. So it was kind of odd how it all kind of came together. But a couple of months after we started, Bryn Jackson reached out to me and said, hey, you know what? It, it looks like you, know, you, you might be running in kind of the same circles and on the same trajectory as us. And we started trading back and forth information about the podcast and you know, what our plans were, how we were approaching our first advertisers at the time. And he proposed this idea pretty early on of, hey, what if we like kind of teamed up and made our own little network? Because we know that if we talked about each other's shows, we could only benefit from that, right? So you share your audience with me and I'll share my audience with you, <laughs> if only it were that easy. But also we can kind of reduce some of our efforts that we otherwise would be spending a bunch of time doing editing, for example, individually, if we kind of batched that so that we're doing it more efficiently, then we'll both benefit from that as well, right? So it was very tactical uh, initially, and it was kind of like, we, we could possibly build a brand out of this, but that's not really the goal here. Yeah, it makes sense. So it's it's more about like amortizing some of the costs of producing across more people to to streamline. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of stepping back a little bit. I mean, so, you know, you're in this management role. You're also a podcaster. One of the things that strikes me about a lot of your career at this point, you hit at the communication side and the, the media and marketing side, but there's also this underlying, I would call it caring around the craft of helping people be better as developers, right? I think that's at the heart of what it takes to be a good manager. And it's at the heart of what you're talking about with developer T as I've 
you know, look through and listen to your episodes. I mean, a lot of this is about how do we get better? I'm curious, like, was that intentional? Did you realize that was your thing at some point? Or is it more, you know, back to this notion you said earlier of I'm talking to myself in some ways? Perhaps it's both. There was a time where I went through this process of deciding what my personal mission is. And it, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but trust me, try it. Uh, it's less cheesy than it sounds. Trying to define like, what is it that I care about doing in my life? I've set some kind of boundaries for myself. I can't make this something that I can complete. It needs to be an evergreen motivation, which means that money kind of goes out the window in that scenario, right? Because money's so transactional and you can't really make that your only motivation. Otherwise, everything else kind of gets out of whack. Everyone needs resources, right? So that's not really unique enough to matter for this particular exercise. And so I set that boundary that it can't be an end point. It needs to be a more of an identity, right? Something that explains what I care about perpetually into the future without stopping. And wherever that takes me, it'll take me, right? It kind of defines the path. It, there's no destination, right? Because I can't really decide how long this journey is anyway. Right? I walk out tomorrow and I get hit by a bus and journey over. And so if, if my whole life was about reaching this particular destination, then it just, I just kind of wasted. You know, I was, I was looking for something that would give me a perpetual destination as if I had already arrived. And now I'm just, what am I doing here? Where am I at in my life and my career? Some of this is informed by some of my personal values for the world around me, the people around me, the empathy that I hope to foster in my own self. But some of it is just quite simply, we feel good when we help other people. I believe, truly believe that the technical industry, not just developers, but all of the people who are listening to this show and you're interested in this in any shape, the keys to the future are in those hands, perhaps more than any other set of people. I, I really, truly believe that. I believe that the most important people in the world are the ones who are doing this kind of work. And so if I want to have an outsized positive impact on humanity or on the people around me, even just for my children and, and their children, then this is the group of people to talk to. These are the people that are going to make that possible. And so helping those people find their path, find their clarity, their perspective and their purpose, which is, by the way, the mission that I ended up coming up with for the show is to help developers find their clarity, perspective and purpose in their careers. Then that would be my way of impacting the world positively. Even if it's just one episode of a podcast at a time, that's my perpetual path. It hits at so many things, I think that are at the heart of what helps drive people in a fulfilling career, right? And not just a job or not just something about the money. So I, yeah, I, I appreciate so very much you sharing that, Jonathan. This is something I've been working a lot on with myself as well and trying to quantify it a bit more. I've always been kind of a guided exploration. Uh, people who listen to the show have heard me say that phrase before, but I really spent some time over the last year on this exact kind of question. Maybe it's that time in life that I'm at. Maybe that's where you're at. But 
you know, that finding that value and finding that way of defining what your long-term goals are. Because the money side, you know, especially if you're in tech, and I, and I don't mean to be glib about money because there's a lot of people who, you know, are struggle to have resources, like you said. But if you're in tech, like you can find the money. If you're in a privileged state, like what you said, I mean, you can find a way to earn some money if you're willing to hustle and do the work. And for some people, you don't even want to do that, right? But you know what I mean? But like to have a more fulfilling life, it's not about just the money. It's about, you know, ideally you can combine the money with the fulfilling work. That's the real holy grail in some ways. But let me then shift gears a little bit because I, I love this question of any time I have managers on the show, and especially I think it actually does tie back into this philosophy a little bit, but break it down for me a little bit more in terms of the practical day-to-day about how you think about team building, how you think about hiring, how do you make sure your team is effective? Not just the, you know, the more esoteric of people listening to your podcast, but about the ones who show up for you and are part of your team as a manager. If you approach any manager, there's kind of three things that I think are important to understand, at least about me. The first thing that's incredibly important is is kind of where are you looking? All right, this is where is your gaze? Where are you focused? Okay, for me, I'm focused on long term. In this industry, long term is anything longer than about two years, right? So necessarily, we're not talking about 20 years down the road, although that still applies to my thinking because the infrastructure that you might build for two years requires the same kind of long term thinking as what you would establish for even longer. So where is the gaze? It helps define decision-making as a practice within that team. So I optimize, when possible, longer than two years, right? Like well down the road. We're, We're looking for full career success for the individuals on this team. And that means beyond whatever we're doing together. That's thing number one for me. Uh, The second thing that's really important to my kind of philosophy as a manager is what is kind of the motivating, I'll call it an engine for work on this team and particularly for the manager's work on this team. What I've decided, uh, my philosophy is around this is finding sources of fear and eliminating them. And if you only do that as a manager, it's mind boggling how much fear people operate with. You know, we can talk about this at at really in-depth length, uh, down to the neuroscience level, but at a fundamental level, our ability to reason is compromised when we are afraid. Again, this is at a physiological level, this is proven to be true, right? And so the things that cause us fear are more nuanced than we expect. It's not just when our child is about to walk out into the road. That's not the only time we experience fear. We experience fear in a hundred different ways every single day of our lives. We don't realize it, but we are governed in many ways. Our decisions are governed by fear. And we've done really good as a species. We've done really good as a result of this. We're afraid of things, and so we avoid them and we survive. And we continue to proliferate. And here we are, you know, uh, millions of years later, still alive because we are afraid. So we're optimized for fear. But the problem is, We haven't really adapted that fear to be rational to the problems that we face today, right? We're in this weird point in our evolution as a species that our fear is not rational. 
And so we have to react to that in meaningful and intentional ways. And so as a manager, that's what I have to keep in mind. I have to keep in mind that fear is kind of our operating system, our mode of operation as humans, and that we need to engineer our way around it. We, are, we have higher level thinking, but we have to employ it intentionally. It's not something we can rely on our automatic responses for. Totally changes the way a team works. Thing three is actually that question that we were kind of circling around in, in thing one, which is understanding what we are optimizing for, not in our roles in a more permanent sense, but in any given decision. If we understand what we're optimizing for, then it helps us make decisions about what we're not optimizing for. We each have a mode that we tend to optimize for by default as well. This is kind of a 3B, if you will. Uh, we have default optimization modes. And so I might, for example, as, an, as a manager, my default optimization mode is to find and eliminate fear. But that may not necessarily be the thing that I need to optimize for in this moment, right? I might need to set that one aside and optimize for something different for a given problem. Notice I didn't say anything specific about individual team members. There's a lot that those things actually inform. Because the fear question is going to be different for every member, right? Some people fear one thing and, and others will fear yet another, right? You know, the funny thing is the anticipation of the thing and the fear of anticipation, you know, right? Like that's often the bigger thing for most people, especially, you know, again, like, you know, first world problems type thing or Maslow's hierarchy thing where, you know, for the most part, people in tech are not fearful for not having food on the table kind of questions, right? Am I going to get that promotion? Am I going to get this thing done? Is, are we going to be able to sell it? Those kinds of fears, not, you know, there's some apex predator down the street. <laughs> well, what's interesting though, is, is that our brains don't really differentiate. So the brain's response in both of those scenarios treats it as if it's life-threatening. The fear response we have our bodies do the same thing. We prepare physically, quite literally, when we have anxiety about a meeting. Our bodies are like, all right, you might die in this meeting. It's like, no, I'm not going to die in this meeting. So we have to remind ourselves, but very often our brains are informed by our bodies just as much as, as the opposite. Jonathan, kind of coming on the home stretch here, real quick, uh, almost like a lightning round question for you. What's the best thing about your role and what's the most challenging thing about the role of being a manager? The best thing about the role is probably that I get to see people growing before my eyes, getting you know, better at the things that they care about getting better at. That's probably the most critically important thing in my role for me, as it turns out, making a product at the same time. But they're growing as an individual, and that's so rewarding to see. The most difficult thing about my role is probably that the job of being a manager you have to align that goal of growing people to some kind of other track, right? The, the track of developing a product or the track of building a, a cash flow positive business. Otherwise, you know, you don't have the fuel to create that growth for that person. Finding a way to align those things and always bringing it back to that, you're kind of hijacking the train in a lot of ways, right? You're, you're, you're saying, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm going to carry you along with me and we're going to grow on this ride but we got to get on the ride. Like we can't skip that part. Otherwise, we literally miss the train and we can't do this anymore. Like we're all going to go home and no more growth for anyone, right? So it's, it's this dichotomy and balance that you have to strike. 
I love the way you frame that. Jonathan, this show is called Developmentor. The word mentor is right in there. I want you to put on your mentoring hat. What's your best career advice for somebody? Maybe it's for 18-year-old Jonathan. I don't know. But what's your best career advice? Challenge your assumptions about everything all the way through life. There's never a point where you're going to reach a place where your assumptions are suddenly unchallengeable. Always consider whether that assumption is right and why you think it's right. Test yourself against it. That's my biggest piece of advice. And and that leads you down so many paths. For example, assuming that you have to end up a manager to be successful in your career or assuming that you must get better at this particular language in order to get a promotion. All of these things are stories that we tell ourselves. And sometimes those stories have some truth in them. Sometimes they're entirely lies. But at the end of the day, we have to challenge our assumptions to figure out what is truth and what's not. That's fantastic. Let's end on that note. So great to have you on the show. One last question. Where can our listeners find you? Where can they follow you on social media? Where can they learn more about Developer T and Spec FM and all the places you're active? So spec.fm is more broadly the network. You can find Developer T on the homepage there at spec.fm. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My personal Twitter is at Jay Cottrell. And then uh, at Developer T is the Twitter for the show. Fantastic, Jonathan. And for our listeners, do give Developer T as well as some of the other ones in the network a listen. If you like what you heard from Jonathan today, it's obviously going to go into way more uh, depth over the course of a lot of episodes. So there's really an opportunity to kind of make this part of your daily practice. So I would encourage you to be sure to check that out and subscribe and support the show there. Jonathan, thank you again for joining me. I know it's late as we're both recording this. I'm keeping an eye on the clock, so I want to let you get back to your evening, but so great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Grant, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, as always, to our listeners for taking the time to listen. If you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app is. You can also visit us at developmentor.com to hear older episodes as well as find other content on careers and technology. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. If you have any feedback on this episode or any episode, or you'd like to be a guest, drop us an email at podcasts at developmentor.com. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move that one step closer to finding your path.